0: We're going to look at a familiar passage of scripture, at least uh, probably parts of this, or maybe phrases are, are are familiar. A few songs have been written about it here and there. So, but uh, kind of looking at this chapter, uh, it's a really a beautiful chapter in God's message here through the prophet Isaiah, and I believe it's a message of hope. Our, our song of the month we've been singing is "My Hope Is in the Lord," which gave His life for me. What a beautiful promise and truth that is, and we do have hope in the Lord. And I want us to know as we begin this year, that's kind of our focus for this month is really finding our hope in God. Our hope is found in Jesus Christ. And uh, we're going to find that out uh, here today. So I invite you, once you find your place there in Isaiah chapter 35, let's stand for the reading of God's word if you're able to. Isaiah chapter 35, and we'll read together the, the entire chapter, just 10 verses. The Bible says, "...the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them." And the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it. The excellency of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a hart, and as the tongue of the dumb sing. And for in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. And the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. And the habitation of dragons, where each lay, shall be grass, and reeds, and rushes. And a highway shall be there. In a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. And the unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those. The wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, no any ravenous beast shall go up up thereon. It shall be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the redeemed of the Lord shall return, and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. And they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Blessed be the word of the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we come before you this morning again with hearts of thanks and and gratitude to you. And Lord, we want to give you glory. And especially as we see what, Lord, as this has been prophesied, what it will look like when you return. Father, that uh, the world be changed back to what you intended it to be full of blessings, Lord. And Lord, we just ask that today our hearts would be strengthened in our hope in you and having hope in the desert. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right. I'm going to go ahead and turn one of these lights off here really quick so we can see just a little bit better. There we go. So we're going to talk about having hope in the desert this morning from Isaiah chapter 35. And as we were reading through this passage, I'm sure some of this sounded familiar. Different phrases, like I said, maybe different songs came. I know for Woody, there was at the end, there was definitely a song that came to your mind. <laughs> but anyways, there this is, a, again, just a lovely passage. There's parts of Isaiah uh, that really just speak well to us, but I think sometimes... Uh, maybe we're disconnected because we only hear a bit there or a, or a bit here, and kind of seeing the big picture together, and that's kind of what we're seeing. But in order to kind of set the stage, I want to take you now to Israel. I want to take you to the desert. I don't know about you, but the desert is a very special place uh, in the Bible. And as we see, there so many things in the Bible happened in the desert. When we think of, of course, uh, you think of Moses leading the children of Israel through the wilderness. The desert, the Midbar, for 40 years. We think of other people who are in the desert, such as Elijah, for example. We think of Jesus himself being tempted of the, of the devil for 40 days in the wilderness. Uh, we, we, there's so many stories that take place in the desert, and that's kind of where we are today. Now, for me personally, for our family, Israel today is a, is a small country. It's about the size of the state of New Jersey. Put in layman's terms, Israel can fit inside Lake Michigan and still have room to water ski around it. But nonetheless, it's a very interesting place. It's a semi-desert climate. But the southern part of Israel, actually about 60% of Israel today, is desert. And uh, only about 10% of Israel's population lives there. But I want you to take you a little tour of Israel right now. And we're going to kind of see the setting for what Isaiah is talking about. And we're going to see how much that the desert is being transformed into. And I think you're going to be amazed to see what is happening now in Israel, and then from this Bible passage, what God will do in the desert. And my challenge it for us this morning, and through the word of God, and through His promise that there is hope in the desert. There is hope in the desert. And I pray this would be an encouragement, too. We start, first of all, looking with a little map of Israel. If you have even, sometimes in the back of your Bible, you'll have some maps there. You can kind of look at this as well. But anyways, Israel today, like I said, it's a smaller country, about the size of the state of New Jersey. But we're looking today at the southern part of Israel. We're going to start with Beersheba. Beersheba is the ancient town of Abraham. I love Beersheba. We actually, when we were over there, we had a a, a ministry that was in Beersheba. Today is a population of about 210,000 people that live there. And uh, really an amazing place out in the middle of the desert. I absolutely love there. We used to, we used to do a Bible study and we used to do distributions and helping uh, some needy families there in Beersheba. Really interesting. But this is the town of Abraham uh, there in the desert. But you go from Beersheba south. Uh, actually, when we were living in Tel Aviv, it was about an hour and a half drive from Tel Aviv to Beersheba. And when you got a little south here, you come down the highway here near Kiriat Gat, And then once you started getting a little south of Kira at gut, the landscape started changing. And all of a sudden, you're seeing fewer trees and more sand dunes, okay? You're seeing more hills and more wilderness, rocky terrain. And uh, you start seeing a lot of, instead of, you know, we have deer crossing signs here. Well, there you have camel crossing signs, Okay. It means the same thing. Look out for them, okay? <laughs> you don't want to hit them either, okay? So with that in mind, that's kind of what we're at. So when we talk about Beersheba, now we're talking about south of here called the Negev Desert. And the Negev Desert is, uh, is what we're going to be focused on today. So again, it's, it's about 60% of Israel's land today, and only about 10% of Israel Israelis live there. <laughs> but I want us to, to introduce you to David Ben-Gurion. David Ben-Gurion is the fa- one of the fathers of Israel, uh, modern state of Israel today, and also Israel's first prime minister. Um, and so when we think of David Ben-Gurion, he had a very big heart uh, for the desert. He had actually had a vision for the Negev. And while the Negev, like I said, only about 10 Isra- 10% of Israelis live there, uh, and I would say many people, when they would first see the desert, you would give up on the desert. And I don't know about you, but uh, even for us, when we, even when we lived there, I loved visiting the desert, but I don't know if I would want to stay there. I don't know if I'd want to st- just to stick there in the desert. Maybe there's some people. Uh, I know um, George and Dorothy's son, Ken, was, was up uh, recently, but he lives in Arizona. He couldn't wait to get back to the desert, especially after all the snow we had this week. Okay? <laughs> Maybe there's some advantages. But I don't know about you. Maybe you're one of those people who said, man, I wish I could live in the desert all the time. There's a few folks like that. God bless them. But I don't know about you, but I don't think that's a place that we would w- voluntarily want to spend all of our time. In the desert. But I would say this. David Ben-Gurion, though, loved the desert. And he saw a great potential in the desert. One of his favorite Bible verses. You can go to his home in Boker. Uh, There's the Negev Desert. You can see the Ibex. That's the mountain goat that you see there. Okay. And so this is what it looks like. Very arid. Very barren. Think of the children of Israel. When they wandered through the wilderness, this was the scenery they had to endure for 40 years. When Elijah... Uh, flees the prophets of Baal, goes to Beersheba and to the desert. This is what he sees. This is the landscape he sees. Nothing has changed during this time. It's pretty much the same. But here is David Ben-Gurion's home in Sederbaker. After David Ben-Gurion uh, was the prime minister, actually for a long time, the only person that's uh, surpassed him in amount of time as a prime minister is Benjamin Netanyahu, who recently became the prime minister again for the third time, okay, Israeli politics, got to love it, okay? But nonetheless, after Ben-Gurion retired from public service, he said, I'm moving to the desert. And he uh, went to this little piece of land. In fact, when he first got there, there was a couple people planting trees. Why? Where? In rocks? And all that? And he says, this is the place I want to live, believe it or not. And so he lives there. He builds this little house. And you can go there today. It's a part of the national park system in Israel. You can go into David Ben-Gurion's house. My wife and I, we've been there several times. And you can go in there and see how he lived. Very simple life, okay? Uh, and then you can actually see his little library. He has there on his bookstand, I don't have a picture of here, but he has a, on his bookstand a, 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 basically a, a, a sculpture of Moses. Moses, who led the children of Israel through that very wilderness so many years ago. And he is reminded of the promise of God could work through Moses in the wilderness. He can work through us. So, But what he did was this. Ben-Gurion, he focused a lot on the potential of the desert. And he started writing down Bible verses. And if you go to his desk, you can see it's written in Hebrew. And on his desk, he has several verses written. And many of them are from the passage we just read, including that the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. This is one of his major uh, major verses that he loved. He put it upon that. So he saw the potential. Now, he wasn't looking at the spiritual fulfillment of the Messiah and all that. He looked at the potential like, we as Israel, we can man up. We can do this. and we can become a light to the nations because of our ingenuity and also because of our character and how we do it. That's how he focused on it. He was more of a humanist uh, perspective in that. But nonetheless, he took this, these verses seriously and he said, I'm, we're going to do something about it. So, in, anyways, so we think about this. So sedebo is about 30 miles south of Beersheba, where we mentioned earlier. And that's his home there. And that's where he's buried, just buried not too far from his home. And that's where he and his wife Paula are buried. And this is the wilderness of Sin. You probably have read that in the Bible, the wilderness of Sin. This is the area. So here is David Ben-Gurion and his wife. Uh, that's David's uh, tomb. And then this is the grave of his wife, Paula, right here. And this is where they are buried. So he's buried in the desert, the place that he loved and dedicated his life to. So in, uh, again, his favorite verse, "...the desert shall rejoice, shall blossom as the rose." So he saw the potential of that. Uh, David Ben-Gurion, earlier, this is the 1950s, he actually saw, again, great potential. And again, in, in the desert, every drop of water is precious. When you think about this, when you go to Israel for the first time, you'll be amazed that uh, you go to different archaeology sites, what's one thing, if you want a, a thriving culture, what's one thing you absolutely need? Water, okay? A spring, a well, reservoir, a cistern, anything that you have. These are so important to have in, in, uh, in, just to survive. And so he saw that. So this is what David ben Gurion's dream was in the 1950s, that Israel would become a leader of, of water supply by desalinization plants. This was unheard of as far as the practical aspect until really just the past few years. And Israel has become a leader. So much, though, that this was a recent report in the past year or two that the Sea of Galilee, which is in northern Israel, which supplies Israel about one-third of its water supply, believe it or not, they are exporting the water from the Sea of Galilee now to the country of Jordan. Why? Because Israel, their desalinization process that they have in the plants is basically helping their own economy that they're actually being able to take the precious water of the Galilee and give it to their neighboring nation, Jordan. Isn't that amazing? This is something that David Ben-Gurion saw years ago, and people thought, no, that's impossible. That's a dream. He said, no, this is a reality. He said, uh, in order to be a a realist, you have to believe in miracles. That was David Ben-Gurion. Okay. So with that in mind, today, there has been actually back in the 1960s, there was the Ben-Gurion University that was named in his honor. And they have done research in many different fields. A lot of it is in water conservation and also in agriculture in the desert. And then uh, also in medical. The Soroka Medical Hospital is there as well. And basically um, uh, providing a huge resource. In fact, they have schools for international students to come and to learn different things there. But that's there in Beersheba. That's the town of Abraham. And here we are seeing even David Ben-Gurion, his, uh, his uh, legacy still living on today. So let's see a little bit more of what's being done there in the desert. So one thing is this. One thing is really amazing, and I want you to, to look at this, is this, that the Ben-Gurion University carries on the vision of David Ben-Gurion transforming the Negev. Israel is known as the startup nation and has su- achieved many successes, especially in drip irrigation and water conservation. Believe it or not, the Negev Desert supplies 44% of Israel's entire agriculture. The desert supplies 44% of Israel's agriculture. By the way, if you've never had a pepper, cucumber, tomato, you name it, if you've never had it from Israel, guess what? You're eating it from the desert, and there's nothing like it in the world. Okay? It's just amazing what they can do. And here you see some, some of the results that are picked there in the desert. Just amazing. Believe it or not, an, another interesting thing that Israel is doing in the desert is growing a different crop, fish. They're growing fish in the desert and feeding the world through that. Uh, there's actually students that come from Africa, like Ghana, Uganda, and other places. Um, maybe Cameroon, I don't know, hope so. But they're, they're, they're studying and learning these different trades and taking it back and helping these other communities prosper. So I guess you could probably say this, that Israel, their goal is this, as Ben-Gurion envisioned, that the desert will blossom as it rose. With that in mind, here's an interesting statistic just came out here just a couple years ago. Israel is now the only country in the world that is actually shrinking in its dry lands, its desert, due to unparalleled expertise in water research and technology that is making the desert bloom. Israel is the only country where the desert is losing think about that you go everywhere else you go to the sahara you go to other desert places and it's basically opposite way in israel it's reversing the desert is blossoming blossoming as it rose david biggram famously said this the difficult we do first the impossible takes just a little longer that was his mindset okay and so what do we do through this Even though that Israel has made incredible advances in the desert, it cannot be compared to the transformation that awaits when Jesus the Messiah returns to the earth, judges the wicked, and redeems the righteous. In victory, he will bring peace and prosperity with his presence. And as we come to this passage now in Isaiah 35, in light of future events, prophecy, what will happen when we trust in the Lord instead of the nations? And that's really the idea. So the idea of this message here is this. There is hope in the desert. When it looks like, again, most people come to the desert, they think, we can't live here. Nice to visit. We can't stay here. Life cannot succeed without this, okay? Uh, But guess what? God, through his presence, through his provision, will give hope to the desert. There is hope to the desert. And obviously, we can apply this to your own life. We're going to kind of get a quick application right now. Many times, your life feels like a desert. Where's the next drop of water? Where, how am I going to survive through this day, through whatever experience is going on, circumstance in my life right now? God has good news for you. There is hope in the desert, and that's by trusting in Him. Don't trust on your own resources. Don't trust in what the world has to offer. They can't offer much, and it won't last long. But with God, it's eternal. There is hope in the desert. And that's our introduction for the message today. Okay? So as we come here, now in Isaiah chapter 35, we're going to look at a couple things. In Jesus, there is hope in the desert. How, what does this hope look like? First of all, we see in verses 1 and 2 that hope brings change to the desert. Verse uh, 1 and 2, the Bible says, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given it, and the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. As we see this, it's important to look in context of this. So Isaiah chapter 35 here, we basically see the restoration of Zion, the restoration even of of the people that he does. And we're going to see that through the verses. But this is really the mirror image of what just took place in Isaiah chapter 34. Look just one chapter behind, and I want you to see something here. You see, in, in chapter 34, this is really God's wrath upon the nations. And we see this, this will be carried out when the Lord will return. We see the battle of Armageddon, when the, the armies of the Antichrist, the armies of this world, when they attack Jerusalem, this will be their fate, as we see here. Isaiah chapter 34, look at with me in verse 1 and 2. It says here, Come near ye nations to hear, and hearken ye people, let the earth hear, and all that is therein the earth and all things that come forth of it. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations and his fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them and hath delivered them to the slaughter. Man, that's what happens when the Lord will return. The wicked will be judged and the earth will be redeemed. And what what is happening here? Now we see, again, the mirror opposite of that in chapter 35 that the wilderness, the place of desolation now, will rejoice. The desert will blossom as the rose. Okay, as we see this. The Lord, what is he doing? He's reversing a, a dire situation in that it's basically returning to Eden. That's what's happening. When the Lord returns, especially set up his millennial kingdom and then into eternity, what's happening is this. He's basically, we see in the very first part of the Bible, God created everything good and very good. But because of sin... Because of rebellion, what happened? The world was turned upside down. We deal with disease. We deal with thorns and thistles. We deal with deserts, if you will, of the world. Places where life is very difficult to, to thrive. But now we see this. Now when the Lord returns, that this will turn, turn back. Could you imagine shoveling snow for the millennium, every, every, every day in the millennium? When the Lord returns... Praise God, that ain't gonna happen. Okay, <laughs> all right. But here's the deal: when we see in a way, it's kind of like a desert situation that we're dealing with here. We feel stranded sometimes. We feel hopeless, but uh, praise God, He's returning. He's gonna He's gonna develop this world back to basically Eden. Eden will be restored. Like I said, the Earth faced God's judgment, and yet He would redeem His creation. That's what happens in chapter thirty-four. The Lord will return and he will judge the wicked. He will judge the nations that have rebelled against them. We also know this, that because of sin, and this is really, why is this taking place? Why is there conflict in this world today? And the ultimate answer to that is because of sin, the sin that pervades this world and the results of sin. Romans chapter 8, verse 22 says this, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Because of sin and its effects, it is groaning. It's waiting for that one day of redemption. And when the Lord returns, the earth is going to rejoice. I'm talking about the physical earth. It's going to rejoice in that regard. Praise the Lord for that. Okay? I think one thing just to kind of uh, explain a little bit of a glimpse of what this is like. Again, we I love when I, we would travel down to Beersheba. And like I said, when you got a little bit past Kiriath, you're heading south. And like I said, it's barren wasteland. When, so when you are... Uh, let's say their time of October, November, you are just about at the rainy season, when the rainy season starts in Israel. So basically from May until October, the Negev desert doesn't get one drop of rain. You got a rainy season and a dry season. Okay, that's how it is. And so when the former rains come, usually in October, when you get those first rains, when it hits the ground, when it penetrates the ground, guess what happens overnight to the desert? Flowers, grass, Springs forth abundantly; it it dramatically changes the landscape. That's just a small glimpse of what it's going to be like when the Lord returns. That barren wasteland, because of the effects of sin, when the Lord returns, it will the land will flourish. We're going to see grass and flowers and everything. The creation will change. It'll be it'll be amazing to see this together. And that's the effect of the Lord's return. And just to describe it, Isaiah says here in verse two that it will blossom abundantly and rejoice. Even with the joy in seeing the glory of Lebanon, it says Carmel and Sharon. So what is happening is this, that the desert will become even more beautiful than Lebanon, known for its great cedars. Beautiful area. Carmel, you think of Mount Carmel. Today it's just a beautiful, you think of the, the major agriculture that comes in Israel is near Mount Carmel in the Jezreel Valley. And then you have the plain of Sharon. The Shur, plain of Sharon is near Tel Aviv. Uh, and right before you get to the, the, um, the Judean hills in that area. And when you see that, it's just a a flourishing area. But when you see that compared to the desert, when the Lord returns, that it's going to be greater than all those things combined. And it will reveal glory. But it's not glory of its own. The glory and the excellency that we have here is not the glory and excellency of the desert, of the Negev. It's the glory of God. In essence, what's happening, it will shine brightly. This is what God has done. It reminds us, even as we, when God has basically, in you, created that new life. You are a new creature in Christ. Your life has forever changed, and you become like that barren desert, and when that rain hits, you instantly are flourishing. and You have that new life and new growth in your life. What does that look like? Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, that let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works And what? Not to glorify you, but glorify your Father, which is in heaven. You see this? When God does a work, a life-changing work in your life, it's not for your glory, it's for His. And when the Lord comes back, and when, so much that it will affect the desert, it will blossom as a rose, it will blossom as the flowers, the grass that is there. It's a life-changing thing that when you see this, you cannot say, man, what a glorious desert. No, you're going to say, what a glorious God. That's the point of this. There is hope in the desert. God can work in your life. It's interesting that David Ben-Gurion, he saw Israel, the modern state of Israel, as a light to the nations. Not because of their craftiness or ingenuity per se, but because of their character as well. That they should shine as lights, an example to the nations. Even more so, when God has done a work in your life, that you should be example of the glory of God. Talk about my hope is in the Lord, which gave, gave his life for me. Our reflection of that, look what God has done in my life. Don't look at me. Yeah, I mean, I'm his vessel, but this is what God has done. What a testimony that is. So we see that hope brings change to the desert, but we also see that hope brings comfort to the desert. Look with me in verses 3 and 4. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not, behold your God will come with vengeance, even God with recompense, and will come and save you. As we see these verses here, we see those that are discouraged, those that are fearful, and especially what happened when you look at, compared to chapter 34, let me look at the grand scheme of things. The time that Isaiah was writing this, he he was writing at a very tumultuous time in Israel and Judah's history, because it was right around this time that Sennacherib and the Assyrians basically captured northern Israel, the year 722 B.C., he captured them and took them away. And there was threatenings that were happening in Judea. Remember Hezekiah. Hezekiah built the walls. And there was places like Lachish and Azekah. Other places that were conquered by Sennacherib and the Assyrians. So the people in Judea, they were living in fear as well. But God delivered them from that. But also Isaiah warned that there was going to be coming another time. The Babylonians, not that long after, that was also going, as a piece of God's judgment, over there. People were discouraged. People were fearful. But Isaiah's message to them is this. There is hope in the desert. Therefore, take comfort and hope that God will judge and God will deliver. Praise God for that. It says here, strengthen the weak hands, confirm the feeble knees, say to them that are fearful, be strong and fear not. Why? Because God has promised to come. This is really here. This is Isaiah's message that God has promised his presence and his protection. God will come. That means he's going to be there with you. He's also said he's coming to protect. This is a message specifically, like I said, to the Jewish people, to encourage the Jewish people to trust in a faithful God. But this is something that we can also know. By the way, as we reach out to our Jewish friends and neighbors today with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we encourage them that they can trust in a faithful God. So many, even Israelis today, those same workers that are there working in those fields in the Negev Desert, I'll be honest with them, they're very secular, some even atheistic. They're not trusting in a faithful God. They're trusting in their ingenuity, their education, their craftsmanship, their workability, whatever it may be. But the fact of the matter is, the message is to the Jew first and also the Greek of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth, it, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Therefore, we should encourage the Jewish people to trust in a faithful God. And guess what? That goes to your Gentile neighbor as well. They can trust in a faithful God as well. You can trust in a faithful God. But for the believer today, this is the message here from the desert. In our present trials, in your present desert, a strong hope of the Lord overcomes a fearful heart. You may be going through a time where you're fearful. You're wondering maybe about a meeting coming up, a doctor's appointment, some other struggle, the thing that you're going through right now. And in a a way, it's kind of like a desert for you. How am I going to get through it? How am I going to pass? You feel like you've been wandering for 40 years. Ever get that way? You feel that way? But guess what? God has promised his presence and his deliverance for his own. In your present trial, there's a strong hope of the Lord that will overcome a fearful heart. That's how you do it. So with that in mind, hope not only brings change to the desert and comfort to the desert, but also brings deliverance to the desert. Look with me in verse 5. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame man shall leap as a heart and the tongue of the dumb shall speak; for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert, and the parched ground shall become a pool. the thirsty land springs of water, and the habitation of dragons where each lay shall be a grass with reeds and rushes. So what is happening here? We see that God's deliverance will transform and affect the land in different ways. Lives will be spiritually, and even physically changed by messianic power, by the power of the Messiah. As you see here, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The deaf can hear, the lame can see, the lame can walk. Just amazing things. By the way, this hope here was also given to John the Baptist. Remember when John the Baptist was in prison, Matthew chapter 11. He says this, uh, he sends his disciples to Jesus, ask him, are you he that should come or do we look for another? I mean, John the Baptist, you think of all the great strong and confident heroes of the faith? Why would he doubt? But what is Jesus' answer? Jesus gave him an answer in Matthew eleven. He says, Jesus answered, said unto him, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended to me. In other words, that's, maybe he wasn't, Jesus wasn't exactly quoting Isaiah 35, but it definitely illustrates that beautifully. When Jesus the Messiah come, and we saw a glimpse on this earth, Jesus transformed lives, physically and spiritually. How is that going to look when he comes and transforms everything, this broken world that we have, broken lives that will be transformed, and guess what, they will find hope in the desert. That's what we find here. With that, the environment will change abundantly. Again, the last part of verse 6 and then into verse 7. We talked about the, in the wilderness, the waters break forth. There will be streams in the desert. Uh, a parched ground will become a pool, for example. And all these things, everything will change here. What's interesting, I want to point this out. It's, it's really interesting in Hebrew. Uh, I want to point this out. In verse 7 here, it says, And parched ground shall become a pool. The, the Hebrew word for parched ground is sharav. Mandy, you remember the sharav? You don't want to remember it. There's a reason. The Sharab. When you hear on the weather forecast in Israel that there is Sharab coming, you don't want to be out because it's a very oppressive heat wave. The temperature goes immediately about 10 degrees higher and the humidity drops down. It's a very oppressive heat wave. And the idea that we have here, and some translations mention this, that's like a mirage. Have you ever seen those movies? My, one of my favorite movies of all time is Lawrence of Arabia. Okay? He's in the wilderness in the desert for... Almost the whole movie. Okay? So, but with that, what happens to Lawrence of Arabia He's there on his camel and what does he see in the distance? It looks like a mirage. Okay? This is the idea. And for those who live in the desert, when you go through the desert of life even, and for the Jewish people in, in fact, their life is going to be like a mirage. But guess what? It will eventually become, verse 7, a pool. It will become real. That's the idea. It will become reality. What they think is just a dream will become a reality. And that's the idea that we have. The habitation of, of dragons, the Hebrew word actually means jackal. That's where we get the word jackal from. And uh, it says, there shall each lay, shall be grass and reeds and rushes. In other words, the, the whole environment will be transformed. That's the effect of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with that, it displays glory. So with that, we see here, hope brings change and comfort and deliverance in the desert. But we see finally, that hope brings joy in the desert. Verses nine through, or through 8, 9, and 10. And a highway shall be there in a way, and it shall be called a way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, though fools shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, no ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall be found there, the redeemed shall walk there. and The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. And they shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. As we think about this, what happens is this. What happens when the desert is changed? Let me ask you this. What happens when your desert is changed? And now where you thought you're just barely surviving to now you are thriving in the Lord. What happens? We see that joy you find in the presence of the Lord. That's what will happen. You'll have a highway there, a highway of holiness. It's interesting that on this highway that there are, there is set, uh, there are some restrictions. There's actually a toll booth on this holy highway, and it's reserved for who? The redeemed, the ransom. Why? Because this. It's interesting that it's a highway that no one can pay themselves. This is a toll booth you can't pay. You can't pay because the price is too high. Because why? This is a toll booth that Jesus himself has paid for. I like what Charles Spurgeon said regarding this. He says, engineering has done much to tunnel mountains and bridge abysses. But the greatest triumph of engineering is that which made a way from sin to holiness, from death to life, from condemnation to perfection. Who could make a road over the mountain of our iniquities but Almighty God? None but the Lord of love could have wished it. None but the God of wisdom could have devised it. None but the God of power could have carried it out. Again, this is a toll both you can't pay, but Jesus can. And he did. With that, those who walk the holy highway, what will they experience? They will experience security. It says in verse 9, the, the lions, the ravenous beasts, They won't have to, you have to worry about that. You see here that the nation's highway, the way of the world, is a way of the unclean. It's a way of danger, a way of obstacles. The way of the world says, how do you get happy? How do you get to heaven? How do you get to God? The way of the world is going to put obstacles. Oh, you got to do this. You can't do this. You got to do this, okay? All these rules and regulations. People say, well, isn't that what God says? No, there is one way, and that's a way of purity, obedience, and safety. That's the way that God has given us. That's his highway. But the goal of the highway, what is the goal of this holy highway? The goal of the holy highway is to bring us into the presence of the Lord. That's the goal of it. It's not just to make your life easier, folks. When God works in your life and transforms your life, that's a welcome invitation to bring you into the presence of himself. As we see this, we find this in verse 10. The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. So the idea of this, why has God transformed the wilderness? Why has he transformed life? Why he's, he has he made a highway? And that's and when you look at Isaiah, by the way, several times in Isaiah, there's, it's talking about a highway that's there. And there's basically two reasons, either to bring people to God or for God to go to his people. That's the message of Isaiah in his prophecy here. Okay? And so when you see this here, the goal of the highway is to bring us to the presence of the Lord. And this really pictures here the future of the millennium when Jesus, the Messiah, will rule and reign in Jerusalem. The Bible says in Zechariah 14 that we will go up from year to year to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, with the Messiah in Jerusalem. I tell you what, you want to go to Israel? Do it now. I, was, I had a pastor friend of mine. Uh, and he said this, that uh, he, he had no desire to go to Israel. I said, brother, you've got to do the before and after trip. You've got to see the transformation on that. Okay, uh, Maybe he'll get his heart right eventually. I don't know. But, anyways. but nonetheless, it's amazing to see that. But this is really a focus on the future. When the Lord will return, the Jewish people will be there, that remnant. But also the nations, those nations that have called upon the Lord, they will go up year to year to celebrate that feast. And in that, how do we go up to the Lord? The redeemed have a song to sing. It says here, the, it talks about in verse nine and ten that the redeemed will walk in that highway. The ransom, the redeemed are ransom. The idea of the redeemed in verse nine in the Hebrew is gael, which is very close in Hebrew to goel. Is, is hear the similarity there? But the that word there is actually uh, the word that we have for kinsman redeemer. Okay, remember the book of Ruth. How a Boaz was that kinsman. Here's the, here's the idea. Who can walk on that holy highway? It's the redeemed. Those that have been claimed by the kinsman redeemer. Just as Boaz claimed Ruth to himself. Even so, Jesus Christ, our redeemer, has redeemed us. And we can walk that holy highway because he paid the toll booth. That's the idea. That's what we have here. And with that, we are transformed. The redeemed and the ransomed are transformed. What is this going to look like? Because we see here, as they look at the very end of verse 10, and they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. We are promised when the Lord will return, according to Revelation 21, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. There's hope in the desert. This week, we are able to sit down with Bob and Gloria Sherbing. It's been one year. Last last week was the one-year anniversary of Andy's passing. We talked about that last week, too. And we talked about that hope that we have in Christ, that hope that we have, that our lives are transforming. He gives us great comfort in the desert, the desert that you and some others are going through right now, too. There is hope because what? This isn't the end of the story. There's a glorious future that awaits those that belong to Christ. We have no reason to mope and to whine and complain here, folks, because we have a glorious ending. But here's the point of this. We talk about the holy highway. Well, we talk about what it is, but we really need to bring it. Who is the holy highway? Because Isaiah, like I mentioned before, he uses the highway as an illustration. Look with me just a few pages over in Isaiah 40. Isaiah chapter 40 in verse 3. I love Isaiah chapter 40. But I want you to look at one verse with me. It's talking about a messenger who's coming. Verse uh, 3, chapter 40, verse 3 of Isaiah. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord. Make straight where? In the desert. A highway for our God. And explains later on how to do it. And You can have handles of Messiah going through your head the rest of the day for that if you like. All right? But here's the question we have here. Who is the holy highway? Because this message of making in, straight in the desert a highway for our God, who was the person that proclaimed that message? John the Baptist. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. He was that voice crying in the wilderness. Because why? Who is that holy highway pointing to? And really, who is that way to God's presence? It is Jesus himself. Because what does Jesus say? Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way. He is that holy highway. The only way to get to the presence of God is through Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone. Amen. No other system in the world can help you, folks. No amount of money, no amount of good deeds, no amount of, I mean, even if you lived in the church, that's not enough for you to get to heaven because it has to be done by Jesus Christ and by his death on the cross, his shed blood, his burial, and his resurrection three days later, and giving life, and he will transform your life. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. It's the book of Joel. Romans says it's slightly different. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And, folks, when Jesus transforms your life, your life will become different. Your life will blossom as a rose, it will flourish. As you walk that holy highway today, remember this you're walking the way of the Lord. I implore you, I urge you to trust in Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you do not know for sure, if you're on that holy highway, you're on that way to heaven, I implore you to trust in Jesus Christ today for what he has done. If you are here as a believer, keep walking faithfully that road and know that there is hope in the desert, the desert of your life. I mean, the Bible Bible says very clearly the world's going to change. What an amazing time. You see, the prophet Isaiah wrote to a people distressed by Assyria and Babylon. Their lives were devastated, literally and physically, by a desert and desolation. Yet, as Isaiah says, God will one day judge the nations. Today, though, we are challenged to trust in the Lord. There's really not a command to trust God in all this, but I think it's underlying this whole passage here. Trust God. He will make all things new. This is the idea. He will provide a holy highway for the redeemed, revealed in Jesus Christ. There is hope in the desert. You see, the future is in control of the one who holds tomorrow. I urge you to trust in the Lord. And when Jesus Christ is your Savior, the future is your friend. There is hope in the desert. and you can count on that. Trust in the Lord.